morning is from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. This is what Holy Scripture says. Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. When once the owner of the house has got up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then in reply he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the other prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrown out. Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. May God bless, bless the reading of this word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you uh, pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be with us. We know you are. Uh, open our hearts and minds to hear from you this morning, we pray. Amen. As uh, David mentioned earlier, this is our second family worship service, and, and this ties in to our vision as a church. Our, our vision is to be a growing family rooted in Jesus, sharing God's love with our neighbors and the world. And I want to highlight that first part of uh, becoming a growing family. Uh, we have uh, these family worship services where the kids are staying in with us uh, in the second half of the service. Normally they would go to Sunday school, but they're with us because we want the kids here, all of you, uh, to see that this is your church too, that we are all connected together, that we are a family together in Christ. And so we hope that comes through. And we've provided uh, not only an outline for the adults to follow along in, in the sermon, but also a crossword for the kids to fill out as we go through the points. Uh, any teacher will tell you that uh, often you retain information when you write things down. So I encourage you, if you could get the insert out and you want to do that, um, we hope that will only help you retain what we're going to talk about this morning. And so we're jumping in to our series in the Gospel of Luke here in chapter 13, starting at verse 22. And we're told that Jesus here uh, was going through the towns in the villages teaching and this is what our focus has been since last September, looking in the Gospel of Luke at Jesus' teaching. It was a large part of what Jesus was all about. And so here, again, he's teaching, and we're told that he was journeying towards Jerusalem. Now that's important because that is to remind all of us that Jesus was headed to the cross. Jesus knew he was going to Jerusalem to die. And that was on his mind. And so he's giving these very difficult teachings. And that's what we have here 
uh, starting in verse 23, when someone asks Jesus a question from the crowd, they ask, Lord, will those who are saved be few? In other words, someone is asking Jesus, will God save a few people or will God save many people? Now, for us to understand the question, we need to understand what it means to be saved. That's language, if you've grown up in the church, you might be very familiar with. Uh, let me give you this image that might help. Uh, we have this uh, pool here and someone drowning and a lifeguard is saving them. A lifeguard is rescuing them from drowning. Someone else has to come along if you're drowning. You can't save yourself. Someone else has to come and pull you out of the water. And that's the language here. That's what the question is, is referring to, this idea that are we going to be saved? Will it be few or will it be many? Now, that's, that's a hard thing to admit, isn't it? That you need to be saved. It's difficult because we're told all the time, you can do whatever you put your mind to. We're told messages all around. If you try, if you believe, you can do it. And we even see people do amazing things, don't we? Yesterday, uh, my family, uh, we went to visit Watts Towers. I don't know how many of you have been to Watts Towers in Watts. It's a pretty incredible place. Uh, here's a picture of it. It's in the middle of a neighborhood. They're in Watts. And there are uh, 17 towers of various size. The tallest is 90, uh, 99.5 feet tall. Huge. Now, unfortunately, yesterday, it's under a, a restoration process, so it was all covered. <laughs> and we were like, oh, no. Uh, but the, it has a fascinating story, if, if you've ever heard. Uh, Simon Rodia, uh, there's a picture uh, here. This is what he looked like. He was uh, four feet, ten inches tall. He was an Italian immigrant. He was a construction worker in Tile Mason. He moved to Watts in 1917. He had been divorced. He was estranged from his children. He came to Watts, uh, was a drunk, had little money, uh, and not much hope for the future. And so at the age of 42, barely literate, he began digging a foundation on his property. He wasn't even sure what he was building, but he knew it was going to be big. And so over a period of 33 years, Simon, from 1921 to 1954, he used steel rebar, wire mesh, concrete, and, and he embedded in the towers pieces of porcelain and tile and glass and mirrors, whatever objects he could find and whatever objects the children from the neighborhood would bring him. And we watched this video in the art center, and all the while I was amazed, thinking it is incredible what people can do when they put their minds to it. The seemingly impossible, and yet there's something none of us can do on our own. Save ourselves spiritually. Now, why do we need to be saved well, in the Bible, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, it's a story of our relationship with God. You see, we're told in Genesis that 
God lived with Adam and Eve in relationship. But Adam and Eve decided they didn't want to be in relationship with God. They didn't want to do what God wanted, and that relationship was fractured. And they were separated from God. That's the bad news. But the good news of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that God is actively seeking to restore his relationship with his people. You see, the common perception of what it means to be a Christian is uh, to become religious or to uh, clean up your life and start doing all the right things. Uh, we think in terms of our actions and, and, and being a good person, but in reality, to be saved simply means you have a restored relationship with God. You enter into a living relationship with God. And this ha can happen in this life and in the next. And so that's our first point in your sermon guide, that those who are saved are those who will live forever with God. Those who are saved are those who will live forever with God. So being saved means having a living relationship with God for all eternity. Now, that's the good news. Now, there's uncomfortable news that comes with that. What happens to those who aren't saved? Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. See, that's speaking in terms of presence. It's speaking of terms of presence with God. Now, this is hard. This is the hard part of what the Bible talks about. But, you know, and sometimes we think about hell, you know, as fire and, and all these terrible things. And those are images we find in Scripture. But I want, I want to invite you to think of it in terms of hell, in some ways, is what people want. And what I mean by that is, if we're thinking in terms of relationship, hell is when you're not in relationship with God. You're out of God's presence. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. You can divide people into two groups. He puts it this way in The Great Divorce. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. You see what he's saying? That hell, could it be that hell is simply God letting us have what we really want? For those who don't want God, who don't want that relationship with God, that's our second point. Hell is living forever without God. Hell is living forever without God. Now that is a difficult doctrine, and if it isn't difficult, you're not grasping what that means. It's hard. It's scary. And it should scare us. The idea of living forever without God should be the most terrifying thing we can imagine. And, and that's why there's a growing belief among many Christians today that, uh, that want to, they want to reject the idea of hell. They don't, they don't like it. And that's what we call, and this is the third point, universalism. Universalism, universalism is the belief that everyone will live forever with God. Everyone will live 
forever with God. Now, there are several versions of universalism, but I want to simplify it to one version and say that uh, universalism uh, can be understood this way, that no matter what you believe, no matter what religion you might follow, will lead you to God. And we have a slide. It kind of gives you that idea. You see God at the top of the mountain, and, and the different religions all are different paths up to the top of the mountain, whether you're you're a Hindu or, or a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, they all go the same place. That, that's a form of universalism, and that all will be saved. And that's a very enticing belief, because if that's true, then no one goes to hell. No one lives forever without God. But a fundamental problem with that is it's built on the idea that you and I can form God into whatever or whoever we want him to be. That God is like clay and that we can form him into what we want him to be. And do you see the subtle arrogance of that claim? Do you see that? Universalism begins with the assumption that God will conform to who we want him to be that we don't have to conform to what he wants us to be. And here's the thing. If Jesus believed in a universalistic perspective, this passage would have been the perfect time for Jesus to say it. We can imagine Jesus answering the question, my friend, it's not whether a few will be saved or whether many will be saved, but everyone will be saved. But that's not what he says. Notice in verse 24, Jesus said, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So this leads us to our point number four. Jesus makes it clear that not everyone will live forever with God. Now that's a hard concept. It's hard, and you might think, now wait a minute, I thought God was loving. And I thought God was a God of grace. And the answer is yes and yes. He is loving. He is a God of grace. I want, to look, I want you to look with me at verse 29. This is part of Jesus' teaching here. Notice how Jesus describes what living with God will be like. He says in verse 29, People will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Here Jesus is describing the expansiveness of the kingdom, of those who will live with God forever. And this is point number five in the outline. The kingdom of God will be full of people from all over the world. The kingdom of God will be full of people from all over the world. So this helps us reject this idea that Christianity is this Western um, kind of religion, it, it, that it kind of belongs to the United States and that educated, wealthy Westerners are the ones who are Christians. No, today actually Christianity is growing, you know, it's exploding in Asia, in South America, and in Africa. It's worldwide. It's expansive. It's unique above, uh, among all the religions and its ability to enter into any culture and, and make an impact. And people embrace it. Because that's God's heart. His heart is for all the nations to come to, to, into relationship with him. 
And so we see this picture of all types of people coming, and notice what they're doing. Reclining at the table of the kingdom of God, it's about relationship. Again, we talked about relationship being at the core of the, of the good news. You're sitting at the table, eating with God, feasting with God, celebrating with God. It's a party. It's a party, and I hope that helps shape your view of what heaven will be like. Often we talk about heaven as if we'll be ghosts or angels, disembodied spirits with wings and sitting on clouds, strumming harps. And some of you think, if that's heaven, if that's what living with God forever is like, I don't want that. And I don't want that either because that's not what eternity will be. The scriptures talk about eternity. We will have bodies. That's what Jesus was raised from the dead to show us. Friends, you will have a new body, a resurrected body, and that the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation is our eternal destiny, friends, not floating on a cloud. You will eat, you will celebrate, you will feast with God. It's intended to be exciting and amazing and something that you long to be a part of. And so I hope you're asking, well, how do I get there? I, I want that. I want, I want to live e- you know, in, in eternity with God. So how do we get there? Well, let's look again at verse 24. Jesus tells us, strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus says it, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, what does striving entail? What does it mean to strive? Well, number six in your sermon guide is one of, I think one of the common misperceptions of what it means, uh, number six says, for some, striving involves following our parents' faith practices. So uh, for some of you, especially the kids here, uh, you might believe striving involves imitating your mom and dad. Your mom and dad go to church, you go to church. Your mom and dad say prayers, you say prayers. Your mom and dad sing songs, you sing songs. And so for you, maybe striving, being a Christian means just emulating your parents. Now, in my story of faith, that's what I thought being a Christian was for a long time. My mom took me and my brother to church. My dad didn't like to go to church. My dad would rather mow grass (laughs) on Sundays. Uh, He didn't want anything to do with it. But, you know, something happened when I was about uh, 12 years old. My dad was in his 30s. He came to faith. He came to know Jesus. And and when that happened, it was very confusing for me because I thought we were already Christians. So I was thinking, what? 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 See, he came into a relationship with Jesus. And it changed everything. And then I soon followed along with, you know, my brother became a Christian. My mom was already a Christian. Um, So it was an amazing work of God in our family, and we came to understand that it was something that happened between me and God. It wasn't my parents' faith. You see, that's Jesus' point here in verse 28. He's talking to the crowds, and he says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are people that are shut out. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out, there Jesus is saying, listen, you believe that because you're a Jew, this is Jesus speaking to his audience, because you're a Jew, you're going to be in. You think it's 
your ethnic background. You think it's because who your mother and father are that that's what is key for you to be in. And Jesus is saying no. He's warning that crowd no. And he's warning us. It's not about your parents' faith. It's about your faith. And so that's one example of what striving might be. Another example is point seven. For some people, striving involves good intentions. It's trying to be a good person. You don't have to be religious. Uh, you simply try your best. Uh, you, you know, that's what counts. Try, try to be loving. Try to be understanding. Try to be compassionate. Uh, don't, don't force your beliefs on others and be understanding and tolerant. That's, that's often what we think striving might be and that that's what God ultimately cares about. But the famous 20th century poet T.S. Eliot put it this way. He said, most of the evil in this world is done by people with good intentions. Now, that's, this is hard teaching. But Jesus is warning us here out of love that it's not your good intentions that save you. Uh, notice what Jesus says in verse 25 and following. He, he tells a story of the master who, who gets up and he shuts the door. And he, he asks you to imagine yourself on the outside. And you're knocking and you're saying, Lord, open to us. And the master answers, I don't know where you come from. That's relational language. Again, it's about relationship. And, and then you will begin to say, but we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught us in the streets. But he'll say to you, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Friends, this should scare us. It should scare us. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's warning us. And we have to ask the question, does it apply to us today? And the answer is yes, because there are many in this room, you are assuming you're in the kingdom of, of God. You are assuming that you will live with him forever. And Jesus' warning is that might not be the case. When your life comes to an end, and you enter or assume to enter into the kingdom of God, you might hear God say, I don't know where you come from. And so that's point number eight in our outline. There will be many people who think they're in, but will be shut out. Now, I'm afraid uh, this might apply some of us in this room, that you view your faith in a very lackadaisical manner, that faith is hardly ever a part of your day-to-day -day thinking or living, that your life is controlled by everything other than God. And here Jesus is saying we have to strive to enter through the narrow door. It's a narrow door. It's not easily seen. It's easy to miss. And the word strive here, it comes from a Greek word that we get the idea of agonize from. Now, when we say someone is agonizing, we think of someone who is in an intense struggle. 
And so this was a technical term for athletics, for competing. In the New Testament, it was used of, of, of combat, of fighting. And so when you think of this term striving, I want you to think of this image I've got of a wrestler here. Now notice the look on this man's face. It's the image of agonizing, isn't it? That's an image of striving. That's the image Jesus wants you to think about. And so this goes to number nine in our outline. Hear Jesus' warning and do not be lazy and self-assured concerning your relationship with God, whether you're, a, whether you're considering the Christian faith, whether you're a new Christian, whether you've been a Christian your whole life. Friends, we need to open our ears and hear the seriousness of what Jesus is saying to us this morning. We need to consider our own spiritual state. Have I become lazy? Have I become self-assured? Have you? The surprising kingdom aspect we see, it's often the kingdom of God is sometimes referred to the upside-down kingdom, and that description is is uh, applies here in the last words of Jesus' teaching in verse 30. Notice, and this is point 10 in your guide. Some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Now let me ask you, have you ever stood in line and watched as someone cuts in line? Let's say it's a long line, and you watch someone cut in line. How do you feel in that moment? Now some of you, if you could, you you would shoot daggers at that person, wouldn't you? There is a hatred that percolates in your heart when you see that. Or you're on the freeway and there's, there's construction, it's going down to one lane, and you, you're a good citizen, you, you get in line, you're going to wait, and you see those people that cut up. How do you feel about them? Oh, you wish you could just Mm. Oh, it's so frustrating. But friends, why do you feel that way? It's that, it's that sense of righteousness, right? You feel like, I deserve to go before them, right? You feel like, I am doing the right thing. I am waiting in line. They are cutting. That is not fair. It's not right. So you have that anger, that righteous anger, shall we say self-righteous anger, because Jesus is saying... The ones who are last in the kingdom could be first. Wait a minute. That's not right, is it? And that's exactly right. Jesus is shaking us. He, he is waking us up. He's saying this kingdom does not play by the world's rules. This kingdom is built on grace. This kingdom is built on getting something you don't deserve. Do you see It's the key to understanding what Jesus is telling us here. Because you might say, now wait a minute, isn't Jesus telling us to strive? And doesn't that mean we have to strive and work hard in order to get through the door? We have to strive and work hard in order to earn God's love, to enter into that relationship. And no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Because of how we understand what the narrow door is, or more importantly, who the narrow door is. 
This is point number 11 in your guide. Jesus is the narrow door. Jesus is the narrow door. Now, how does that work? Well, I bring to mind for you John 14, verse 6. You might be familiar with it. Jesus there says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, how does that work? How does one strive to enter through Jesus? How does one agonize or struggle intensely to enter through Jesus? Well, this is why the cross is so important. In universalism, the cross is meaningless in in, in many ways. Because if all paths lead to God, why did Jesus need to die? Why? It it simply is an example of, of sacrificial love. That's all a universalist can say. That's the only reason Jesus died on the cross, to show us what love looks like. But in the scriptures, something happened on the cross. Jesus won a victory. He rescued us from our sin, from our selfishness, from our brokenness. Jesus won the day, and he cleanses us of our sin. And he addresses the deep fear we all have that we're not good enough. That we're not good enough. And you know what? You're right. You're not good enough. And that's the best news you could hear. Because striving means you stop trying to be good enough. Hear me. Striving is the intense struggle to stop trying to be good enough. And if you don't think that's hard, you've never really tried it. You've never really tried it because the point of striving is trusting in Jesus. That trusting he is enough. That we enter through the narrow door when we say, Jesus, you are good enough. You bring me into relationship with God. I I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. And Jesus is the one who does. And so we see point 12 in your sermon guide. Striving, agonizing, Involves trusting Jesus and following him. Striving involves trusting Jesus and following him. We strive by handing our lives over to Jesus. We say, Jesus, I give my life to you. Jesus, I will seek to trust you and believe. Jesus, your words are the words of life. And I am now committed to following you. And I strive daily to die to myself, and to live for you. And again, that is an agonizing journey. It can be so hard because we want to do it ourselves, because we want to hold on to this sense that, oh, no, no, I'm good enough. I can do it. It is so difficult to let go and enter that narrow door because we have to put to death our agenda for our lives and pick up Jesus' agenda for our lives and love him and follow him. And so that's our last point in our guide is this question I have for each and every one of you here today. Are you ready to enter the narrow door today? Whether you're one of the kids here or the adults, 
Are you ready to enter the narrow door today? Today, Jesus is speaking to you. And today, he's inviting you to enter that door into relationship with God. What's holding you back? What are you afraid of? What's keeping you from taking that step? Because he wants to be with you. He wants that. Do you? Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask in this time, Holy Spirit, soften our hearts, take away our fear, take away our anger, Take away the things that might block us from hearing your words of forgiveness, of hope, of love. And invite us, Jesus, on the adventure that is living for you and with you. We want that. We hope for that. We pray for that. Amen.